Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Today, it is part two of John McAdams, Steve Generelli, and guest Brandon Hefner as they take a deep dive into World Class Championship Wrestling's International Star Wars event. You can find it on Peacock. Just look for the June 25th and July 2nd, 1983 episodes of World Class. And there are a couple of matches with Japanese talent that did not make it to air. But you can find footage on YouTube. Or just go to the Stick to Wrestling Podcast Facebook group, and I'm sure John has put it up already. Without further ado, here are John, Steve, and Brandon. The next matchup, Iceman Parsons against Buddy Roberts, Hair versus Hair. As Even as a kid watching this, Buddy, they had a, a tag team with uh, Buddy Roberts and the Mongol teaming up against Iceman Parsons and Johnny Mantell, and Roberts and the Mongol went over, and even as an 18-year-old Brandon, I'm like, okay, this automatically means that Iceman's winning the hair match. Yeah, and, you know, I just because his hair was so unique, I figured there's no way he's going to lose it, but then you think, by the same token, that's why he is going to lose it. So I, at the time, I, I had no idea what was going to happen. And uh, as Steve said, it was just the, the visual of him in there with the cream all over his head, the suds and everything. It was it was hilarious, you know, a little levity to, to some of the other seriousness. I, I really liked it. Um, and I mean, you know, and I, I also figure too, number one, even 40 years ago, I'm like, okay, the good guys tend not to lose the hair matches. And secondly, it, it's like, you know, you, you can't shave Iceman's hair. It, it, it's his trademark. Buddy, no problem. You can have him running around bald. Steve, your thoughts. Well, uh, what they did was kind of reminiscent of what would happen years later, uh, uh, having Buddy uh, lose the match and have to wear like a kind of like a boxing headgear and have a wig yeah, under, under there. I mean, uh, Kurt Angle ended up doing that in WWF about 20 years later, well, probably 18 years later, I guess. Yeah, and you know, one thing one thing about this match that had me a little bit little bit puzzled. Buddy wins the match, okay? He holds Iceman's trunks and you know, totally they have to have a, a blue thing on the screen so that you can't see, you know, anything of Iceman's. And then David Manning like listens to the crowd, like, "Oh, he pulled his trunks." And David and David Manning like I don't think he ever got around to restarting the match, but Brandon, I don't know what he was thinking. It's like he didn't see it, he can't call it. Well, that's true, but we're talking about David Manning here, and yep. while I'm sure that's the, the the finish was supposed to be, but um, he was the perfect referee to do it, I guess, because boy, that guy liked to stick his nose in and and really, you know, sometimes try to overshadow the the wrestlers. It was kind of kind of crazy. No, David Manning had more spotlight on him than any referee I, I am even remotely familiar with. And one great thing about this, too, Michael Hayes comes out and you know covers Buddy's head with a towel, and Buddy's got the suds all over his head. And then Iceman goes after Michael Hayes. And, Steve, you want to talk about a crowd going nuts. <laughs> yeah, right. That's true. And I, I wanted to make a point about David Manning. Uh, he... Uh, I've never seen a referee who had uh, such a head of hair that he was just crying for some gel or some Jerry Curl or maybe <laughs> maybe even some Brill Cream. He had the weirdest hair, that guy. He he kind of did come to think of it. Uh, so now, you know, one thing I, I liked about this show and, you know, the big shows are supposed to be mostly about endings. Like, you know, you have the Shea Stadium show with Bruno Sammartino and Larry Zabisco. That was the end of that feud for the New York market. This now, you've got, okay, you've got Buddy and Iceman. Buddy's lost his hair, but that A, leads to the headgear, as you were talking about, Steve. And B, now there is a 
I, I, there is uh, a demand, not that it ever happened, but you know, I'm coming away thinking, okay, we're going to see Michael Hayes and Iceman Parsons the hair match. I mean, Brandon, I think that could have main evented a reunion arena show. Oh God, yeah, and you just wonder if Fritz would have had enough money to pay Michael, or if he had a price that he would have been willing to do it because that would have been that would have been pretty gigantic because it was almost you know even more so than Lawler. Imagining him, you know, losing his hair, which they kind of did the cop out and did the, you know, kind of just shortened it. But yeah, that, I think that could have been massive because, you know, he had a, at the time, especially for the Rockers, I mean, he had a great head of hair at the time. Yeah, okay, okay. I'm, I'm going to go down a little bit of a rabbit hole here. If they had done Michael Hayes against Kerry Von Eric, hair versus hair, someone's definitely getting their head shaved. Steve, I think they would have sold out Texas Stadium. The problem is, though, that who's going to lose that match? If you're, you know, Kerry Von Erich can't lose. That's not, that's not a possibility. If you're Michael Hayes, how much money is going to cost you or how much are you going to charge for that match? Because it's going to take Michael Hayes a long time, years to grow that hair back. And it, it was his trademark. Well, well, in, in a match like the one we just talked about, um, you, you have a mid-level guy, Iceman Parsons, defeats another mid-level guy, Buddy Roberts, even though he's part of this main event faction. You know, Buddy Roberts could afford to lose his hair. Um, uh, Michael Hayes, he's he's a main eventer. He can't really ever lose his hair, even if it's to one of the Von Erichs. So uh, I, I just would take that off the table completely, the idea of him losing his hair. Well, they did. They they did it in Memphis, you know, with with Jarrett or uh, Lawler and and Dundee. Granted, Dundee didn't have the long flowing hair, but for seventy seven ish, he had a pretty good head of hair too. And I guess his fee was three thousand. And he said, you know, it it one one of the matches, you know, put the down payment on my house, and the other one furnished it with night nice. Because they they shaved his wife's head too. I yep. mean, that's crazy. No, I remember Bill Dundee talking about that. He's like, "Hey, you know, I I put a healthy down payment on my house when I got my head shaved, and we furnished the entire house when my, my wife got her head shaved." So that's pretty brutal, though. Anyone having their wife's head shaved in 1977, but you know, like I said, I mean, I just wonder what the number would be for Michael Hayes if there was one to have a hair match. I bet there wouldn't have been one. It's like, look, I'm not Michael Hayes anymore. If you shave my head, forty grand that that would have been the figure right there. <laughs> well, and that's a lot of money in 1983, you know, terms. So he might have been might have been convinced. Uh, in some people's hair grows grows pretty fast, but it, it be, he he would have that would have been really odd. And who knows? It could have killed him killed him dead. You know, it could have it could because, like I said, he's not going to be Michael Hayes anymore for for years. That's not going back. I we're talking about hair too much. <laughs> I remember Michael Hayes cut his hair in like '88, just just a shoulder length. And I, was, and I was like a bit taken aback by it. Anyway, the next match, Kamala taking on three opponents, Mike Bond, Armand Hussein, and Tola Yatsu. So we've got kind of a heel versus heel here thing going here. Steve, what did you think of this match? I thought it was a truly awful match, but what did you think? Yeah, it was a train wreck. Uh, I thought that was kind of interesting that they uh, introduced Armand Hussein as like uh, the African champion or something like that. I mean, what it was Kamala, the unranked uh, champion of Africa. I mean, uh, he, <laughs> obviously he's he's somebody who, who's uh, to be reckoned with. But it, but yeah, it was it was a match that uh, put over Kamala big time, and at the end they had a uh, kind of a run in with Brody. So they're kind of like wetting the fans' appetite for a Brody against uh, Kamala matchup. Well, that was the thing that, you know, once again, a lot of these shows, big shows, you know, they have the ending, but this one has a beginning. Now the fans are wanting to see Bruiser Brody versus Kamala. And, I, you know, once again, great linear booking. Uh, but, I mean, this match... The one thing they did right in this match was it was, you know, heels versus heels. Uh, our main Armand Hussein and Tolo Yatsu just leave in the middle of the match. They run off and leave this poor Mike Bond all by himself against Kamala. Uh, I mean, Brendan, I, I'm not sure you, you watched it. What did you think? I thought this match was horrendous. It, it was, and I was going to say the best part of the match was Brody carrying Bond back to the dressing room yeah, after it was over, like literally. Yeah, just right over his shoulder, and 
Yes, uh, yeah. I mean, I guess it served its purpose because it, it did get um, you know that that feud going and and whetted the fans' appetite to see that because you know they were pretty hot when uh, and and they didn't do much. I think Brody chopped him once, and then they just kind of circled each other. But that that had him frothing. So, I mean, that's what you do. You you, you want them to be. You know, you want them to to want to purchase a ticket for it, and you don't want to give it away. I mean, the, those chops Kamala were throwing. I, I try not to put this stuff under a microscope, but I mean, these chops wouldn't have broken a potato chip. But Armand is saying, you know, goes flying from it. It's like this. This just did not look good, Steve. No, I was just going to say, no. uh, I, I, one of the guys that, that I, I, not that I'm a huge mark for Kamala, and I guess maybe I am, I think uh, a guy like Kamala is missing from today's wrestling. I mean, I watched a little AEW, I watched a little WWF. A guy like Kamala just seems completely missing from today's wrestling. I would love to see him come back. And I know that the real Kamala is dead, but I mean, uh, a guy like a Kamala, it would be nice to see that come back again. Sure. You know what, though? I don't know if you could do a Ugandan headhunter in nineteen or in 2023 wrestling. I remember when Kamala came to the WWF in 1984, my black friends were pissed. They did not like that stereotype. Yeah, yeah. And that's 39 years ago. Yeah, I can remember uh, I had this job in a video store in the in the like eighty six, eighty seven, and and some guy came in from uh, he actually was uh, um, worked as a he was an executive for like Holiday Inn, and that was the um, um, hotel where the wrestlers stayed when they would come to town. And I asked him something about wrestling, and and he just said, "Oh yes, yes, they had this a large African man come in with no clothes on," and uh, it was just funny. He was talking about Kamala, but oh man, wow. <laughs> All right, so on to Ted DiBiase against Jumbo Saruta. Uh, again, this match was not on Peacock, but it is on YouTube. The link is at the Pro Wrestling, uh, Pro, excuse me, the Stick to Wrestling uh, Facebook page if you want to check it out, or just put in Ted DiBiase Jumbo Saruta in the search engine. It comes right up. These are two of the elite workers in the world, and Brandon, in my opinion, they did not put on a good match. They didn't, and I just checked it out, I believe, day before yesterday in pretty high anticipation, and maybe it was the language barrier, although that never seemed to matter much, you know, between guys at any other time, maybe just an off night or something, but I was really looking looking forward to that, and I'm like you, it, it wasn't all that all that it wasn't what it should be for sure in my opinion it was not i mean like i said we're talking two of the best and they i'm sure they work together i mean they both were trained in amarillo and this just match for whatever reason just didn't click steve do you have an opinion on that I, I have to disagree with you guys. Okay, I, uh, no, I like that. I, I, I watched the match. Uh, it was about a 16-minute match. Um, I agree with you guys in the, in the sense that it was a slow start. Uh, the fans uh, didn't really weren't familiar with either one of these guys, so they were kind of like just patiently letting it evolve. Maybe, they maybe really, that was it for me. Yeah, they, 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 I'd say the first 10 minutes, the fans were just patiently sitting on their hands. There really was very little fan interaction. But the last six minutes, they really picked up the pace. I, I would give it like three and a half to uh, maybe three and a quarter to three and a half stars in that range. You know, I think DiBiase could have put more into it. I think Jumbo could have put a little bit more into it, too. But uh, I liked what they did. Honestly, I liked what okay. they did. Okay. Hey, you know, diverse opinions are, are welcome here at Stick to Wrestling. and. It, it's entirely possible that my my uh, expert expectations were just too high. One thing I noticed about this match, I, I was I I haven't seen the, I hadn't seen the match in a long time, probably like twelve fifteen years. But I picked on up on this for the first time. Ted DiBiase, who is the bad guy, the number one heel in Mid South, comes to the ring wearing a white jacket. And I'm like, oh, Ted's going to be a baby face tonight. And he was. He he shook hands with with uh, Saruta before the match, and it was it was a baby face versus baby face match. Brandon, maybe that's why we didn't like it. Baby face versus baby face matches in the United States tend not to be that good. Well, yeah, I mean, because they could do a lot more in Japan. A good uh, example of that was the Backland Roads match. Um, 
because you know in America that would just probably be awful, and that's you know a reason why they didn't didn't do them here that much. It was really hard, you know, to get a, a, a strong baby face over, and they didn't want to risk one guy, you know, being drawn drawn over to the heel side because it was so hard to get a guy over as a baby face. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, that could have been it. And maybe it was just the unfamiliarity with, um, you know, I don't know if Ted had ever worked Texas at all other than Amarillo. I don't know if he'd ever done anything in Dallas at all before that, perhaps. And I know he did Houston all the time at that point too, but. No, I, as a matter of fact, we have a question from Jamie Ward. I don't remember DiBiase working Dallas. I know Watson Fritz had a working relationship. They did at this point. Was this a one-off? And, and the answer, as far as I know, is yes. As far as I know, Ted DiBiase never worked Dallas before or after. But, I mean, Steve, I think if, if Ted, they had brought Ted DiBiase in to feud with the Von Erichs, I mean, I think that would have been great. Oh, yeah, that, that would have been off the charts good. I mean, I, I would just say, uh, watching this entire Star Wars uh, shows, the two shows we're talking about, I really like the feel of the shows because it, 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 it felt like it was something special. It felt like they weren't insulting the audience's intelligence in any way because they did try to present it as just wrestling, uh, nothing more, nothing less, but they, they didn't have any goofiness or any silliness. They did treat it like a regular sport, I felt. No, I agree with you. Um, on to the next match. Once again, this is not on Peacock. It's on YouTube. Uh, the Giant Baba against King Kong Bundy. Now, Bundy is already getting a huge push in Mid-South, so I, this might have been his last match in Dallas. And I'm a little bit surprised, though, that, like, well, then again, it didn't air on Dallas TV, so it didn't really matter if Bundy did a job. But he did a, a, he did a job for Baba. They announced Giant Baba, Brandon, as 475 pounds and i laughed out loud <laughs> yeah that was pretty pretty ridiculous i mean even when it he was young you know i bought him from the magazines and you know but he was just so skinny yeah. um it was just in, insane even though he was tall he just looked so so frail and his, you know, he had that giant rib cage, and it just always looked like it was going to shatter or something to me. That was my perception, and you know, he was he was a legend over there. And you know, I've watched a couple of his matches with the race, and then the the Briscoe stuff, and and he could do some some stuff at times. But I was just never a huge huge Baba fan. Um, yeah, I, I was as the promoter, but not as a wrestler. I guess I should say great booker and and mine just not so great in the ring <laughs> yeah i i agree totally i mean you know I, all kinds of respect for the man himself he was a great promoter great booker but at this point he's 45 years old he looks terrible physically and he just couldn't work anymore I, Steve, I've heard people tell me, oh, yeah, Baba was really good in the 60s and 70s. And I've seen some matches, you know, like Brandon against Briscoe, against Race. And the best thing I could say about him was, well, he, when he was younger, he was okay. He's 45 here. I, yeah, I, I would say this match and the the match with Fritz against Kabuki were both kind of so, uh, so obscure, not obscure, but so just off the charts weird. I uh, was really, they were both compelling in a weird way. Uh, but uh, I think with Baba, I think just that the entire wrestling industry respected him so much. Uh, and that's why uh, they always spoke so highly of him. It's kind of perverse, but... His guys over in Japan did not take it easy on him. If you watch some of the stuff of him older, I mean, they were still laying stuff into him. And I just cringe thinking, good God, that's your boss and you're you're about to kill the poor guy. Yeah, Stan Hansen looked like it was going to kill him at one point. Now, Baba is bad here, right? He's 45 years old. Can you imagine, and you don't have to imagine because it happened, Baba teaming with, in 1992, teaming regularly in 1991-92 with Andre the Giant? <laughs> oh, God. It, it was pretty head-spinning, let me tell you. Now, here's something I have a question on. As far as I know, Fritz von Erich, he was a legend in Japan, and he was a Baba guy, okay? And when Kerry defended the NWA championship – 
he wrestled in in New Japan, excuse me, in all Japan, Baba's promotion. But then when Kerry, Kevin, and David wrestled in Japan, they were Anoki guys. Brendan, can you shed any light on this? I was, I, I kind of realized this uh, as I was watching this, and I was like, okay, what, we're all over the place here. No, you know, I don't even think I realized that, and I have no idea why that would why that would be uh that's really really odd um you know it's kind of like the the bruno thing with with you know some heat between him and senior because he he worked with anoki all the time and and bruno was a was a baba guy so that's really odd that uh fritz was a was a you know all japan guy and they would have worked uh the new japan stuff I, I have no clue but i'd really like to know now that you've mentioned that and not only that, you've got uh, Yoshiaki Yatsu, Tola Yatsu, who's an Inoki guy with Baba and his crew in the building. Steve, my, my only conclusion can be that, you know, maybe they just didn't take the wrestling war as seriously in Japan. It's like, okay, you know, just do what you want. That, that, that could be. Uh, I, um, uh, the question you just posed, I, I never really knew that either. So I'm just an, an alert as to uh, how that could have happened. It doesn't make any sense. No, I, I had to go back and check. I'm like, wait a minute. I know Kerry and Kevin wrestled for Inoki, but then I know Kerry defended the NWA title for Baba. So I, I have no idea. The whole thing's confusing. I should have asked Kevin Von Eric when I had the chance. On to the main event. Kevin Von Erich versus Harley Race, who has regained the NWA championship. Well, I want to address this with both of you. I really liked this about the NWA championship, that the title switches came out of nowhere with really no buildup. You could turn on the TV and just hear like a random title switch like Harley Race has regained the NWA championship from from Ric Flair or, you know, a year and a half earlier. I, I turn on TBS for the first time and I see Ric Flair is the new NWA champion with no buildup. This is the last time that ever really happened. Maybe you can throw in Kerry Von Erich. No, no, that. That had a great big buildup. What am I talking about? Starcade 83 had a big buildup. This was the last chance, last time that ever happened, Brandon, and I miss it. Yeah, I do too. Um, cause, you know, I had TBS a little bit earlier, so I saw the whole Rich thing. And then just a month and a half later, the Dusty thing, and they were both shocking. And that's what made it so fun back then you just didn't know what was going to happen you believed anybody you know within reason could 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 take the take the belt you know even dick slater you know the guys they brought into georgia you thought well if he, they've got him in the main event they you know he's a huge name there and it could happen so I miss that a lot too, um, and and you're right. The the very last time, and that was you know very cool. You know, and another thing that St. Louis would do because the switch happened in in St. Louis. You know, they'd go to the expense after sending out their little mailer that they would do. Um, it was like a week before the keel cards, and if you know, even if they knew that the title was switching, they would. You know, Sam would take the expense and and do a whole new mailing just to kind of keep the keep the kayfabe going. And it's little things like that 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 meant so much back then. Um, it, it's sad that it's gone. It, it's long gone. And, and Steve, you can relate to this. I mean, you, you know, I would go to the drugstore or the, the convenience store, whatever, and pick up a wrestling magazine. And before I even bought it, I would open it up and look at the ratings to see if it's, if the NWA or AWA championship changed hands. And it, it rarely did, but you know, my mind would spin around when it happened. Well, it's it's cool. Uh, well, I mean, one aspect of this match that I thought was kind of you, you know fun to look look back on now, this match, the way it played out, it, it was a lot like your typical NWA champion match where the NWA champion goes to a random town in the United States. He, he makes the local guy look like a million bucks. And, and then there's some weird, f f uh, you know, funky w w ending to the match. And, and then, and nothing really happens at the end as far as the, the title doesn't change. But, um, but, but I think Harley, you know, Harley in the match, uh, 
he had his moments where he was winning the match, but a lot of the time he was just putting uh, putting him over, uh, putting Kevin over and making Kevin look like a million bucks. Oh, sure. That was a big part of, you know, what Harley Race did, and he was really good at it. I will tell you guys this. When I was watching this, and you know, they announced the week before that, you know, Ric Flair is no longer the NWA champion. It's going to be Ric Flair against Harley Race. And I was, I was just devastated and I was fine with what actually happened. Like, you know, okay, Harley race is going to win. You know, he wins the title in June. Don't worry. Flair's winning it back in November, but I didn't know that at the time. And by 1981, I was, I was tired of Harley race being champion. He'd been champion for four years and I thought it was time for something else. Nothing against Harley at all. And, you know, I mean, Brandon, what were your thoughts? Like, you know, wow, Harley race is the champion again. I remember because I think we had lost KPLR by then. Ah. So I didn't know till I went to the, the the grocery store with my dad. I remember looking at the magazine rack and seeing that cover of the wrestler that race had, had won it back. So I was pretty shocked. And it's funny because I just watched the match yesterday or earlier today maybe and it was the first time that I noticed how much of a step that Harley had kind of lost. And it wasn't just about him, you know, selling for for um, Kevin because he did that for everybody. He was really non-selfish that way. Um, but he had, you could just see it, you know. And it was time because I was I was pretty excited when when Flair took the belt, you know, from from Dusty, and I figured he was going to run for, you know, he did for a long time, it, you know, it took a good while before he he dropped it again, and it was just uh, it was kind of kind of odd, but like you said, we didn't know that you know Crockett was setting up because I'm sure he would you know had plans for for Starcade even even that far back. So yeah, I mean he had already had the the big super card right, with the uh in Greensboro. Yeah, and you know, but yeah, I mean uh, this I I I have too much to say about. It. I won't go too deep into it, but to me that you lost a little something on the NWA title when you start using the title as a pawn for for big shows like that. I mean, it's just not the way it used to be. Coming into this match, though, when Race wins the title, okay, so they switch it. I remember thinking, is Kevin Von Erich going to win? Because a lot of the time, the NWA title, you know, goes on one guy for a very short period, like Harley Race in 1973. And I'm like, you know, back then, we were talking about it earlier. You know, you have that imagination thing going on. I was like, is Kevin Von Erich going to beat Harley Race? Because Harley Race just didn't strike me as a guy who should be carrying the NWA championship in 1983. Uh, Steve, your thoughts. Well, uh, <laughs> watching the match, uh, I, I knew that Kevin uh, didn't do his homework because he's slapping a, a sleeper on Harley within like the first two minutes of the match. You're not going to be Harley raised with a sleeper in the first two minutes of the match, okay? You're not. And there's another thing in this match that I, I thought I thought was really cool. Okay, they had a stipulation uh, where if you threw someone over the top rope, they, they, you were not going to be disqualified for it. Kevin whips race into the ropes, and Harley, you could see, deliberately jumps over the top rope and kind of looks at David Manning like he's disqualified, right? <laughs> yeah, like he didn't know the stipulation. He, he's the Harley race. He just won the title back. He's got a lot on his mind. Well, I will, I will say this about the match too. Uh, you know, uh, Bronco Lubick was doing the refereeing and I will say that he, he still retained some of his youth because he was still counting pinfalls with his hands rather than with his feet. <laughs> I'll tell you what, when it comes to being a referee, Bronco Lubitsch made David Manning look good. I mean, Bronco... <laughs> God bless the guy. He just couldn't move anymore. And, you know, Fritz, whatever, I guess he's loyal to him. He gave him a job. Maybe he should have left him as manager. But, I mean, he was he was noticeably shot. Yeah, he was. All right, so Kevin, of course, because he's a Von Erich, is dominating the match. And then Harley Race throws him outside the ring. Kevin lands awkwardly on a table outside the ring back when that was a thing and re-injures his shoulder. And they had this great moment 
where Harley raced, you know, a couple of minutes later, Harley race notices that Kevin Von Erich has injured his shoulder and his face lights up. It was such a great spot. I don't know. Steve, did you notice that? Yeah. Did he put him in a shoulder breaker after that? Uh, he started going after the shoulder after that. Brenda, did you see that Harley with the big happy face that he sees that Kevin's injured? I thought it was great. Absolutely. And and that was the small things that the you know, the old veterans did and it was just little things. And then Kevin also fell out of the ring and landed on a camera as well after yeah. he had been injured. So it was kind of, you know, a double two two little small things that that, you know, kind of added added to it. But, yeah, I definitely noticed when his face lit up. Yeah, that was a great spot. And now, so now, now Kevin, yeah, exactly. Kevin is now wrestling with one arm, and he does something really smart. He puts Harley Race in a body scissors with his legs. Steve, obviously, I, I'm liking – I agree with Brandon that Harley Race had noticeably slowed down. There was a, a big gap between – uh, Rick Flair going against Kerry Von Erich on Christmas and Harley Race going against Kevin Von Erich. But I mean, I, I thought the match was re- laid out really well. Well, one th- one thing I would say, just just from watching this match, that, that just just you know was like a light bulb moment for me when he put him in that body vice move. Uh, and I'm sure maybe the local fans there, you know, just his the strength of his uh, thighs and everything were legendary. I'm sure I can, you know, believe that. Uh, but but I mean, the rest of his body was completely open to uh, whether Harley wanted to punch him in the stomach or punch him lower or punch him in the face. I mean, the the, the body vice move uh, was one of those kind of silly wrestling moves that you couldn't really um, believe it was a real fight. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, that was a huge move for him in St. Louis. Um, he, I think he won the Missouri title with that. So he had, I, I don't know if he maybe used it more in, in St. Louis, but you're absolutely right. I will say that he was so jacked that it might not have mattered, you know, had you hit him in the stomach, but, um, he, you know, he wasn't huge, but he was always in, always in, 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 Damn good shape. And Kevin was a hell of an athlete in his day, too. I mean, he was he was really good until the the injuries started to pile up. Um, so now we're oh, by the way, Kevin puts race in the claw hold and race escapes by attacking the injured shoulder. So by this point, it, it, it's a lost cause. Kevin, your shoulders out. You're, you're going to lose. David Von Erich comes out and try, tries to persuade Kevin to just give up the match, you know, Fight another day. Don't lose your career over this. And Harley Race kicks David Von Erich in the face. David's outside the ring, and Race just comes over and pow, kicks him in the face. David loses it, goes in the ring, attacks Race. And this is the part that I just thought was really bad. I mean, David pounds Harley Race into into jello. And then, you know, Harley's down on the mat, on his back. And David has a few things to say to Harley Race. For review purposes, let's hear what David Von Erich has to say to Harley Race. The brother just cost Kevin Von Erich the match, even though Kevin probably could not have won it if if his shoulder had continued. I have a lot to say here, but one thing, it's not shown, but I mean, you can see it on Peacock. David just, you know, stands over Harley Race, taunting him, and then races on his back, and David Von Erich just flips the NWA championship belt onto Harley Race. I mean, a lot of weird stuff went on 
in Dallas, in you know, in Florida too, with the NWA champion just looking so bad. But Brandon, I just thought that was I. I thought it then, and I think it's now. I thought it was absolutely disgraceful that you know they they treated the NWA champion and the NWA championship like that. Yeah. Now, what's funny is I had well, once again when Tabe had originally posted i hadn't seen the match since back then and i thought i don't remember anything being being that egregious about it but i once again before we started taping a day i watched it again and it was over the top it, it was definitely too much and i will say that they probably didn't do anything that harley didn't agree with but he probably shouldn't have agreed with with going that over the top uh, you know i can agree with you know david you know kind of him saying it was his turn but say it once and you know don't sit there threatening with the belt for god it seemed like five minutes and and screaming at him and it it was definitely definitely over the top and then and then the tossing of the belt but like i said you know probably nothing done that Harley wouldn't have agreed to. I think they respected him enough to not do that to him, um, and he was up for it. But it was, I was still, still a, a bad look as far as I'm concerned. No, I mean, you know, we talked about Sam Mushnick earlier. I mean, you could tell by this point. You know, Sam had retired, I believe. Was it New was Brendan? Was it New Year's Day, nineteen eighty two or nineteen eighty three? I think it was New Year's Day, nineteen eighty two. It was. It was. They they did the card on uh, on that day, and you know had all the. That's another great thing that's out there. You can probably find on YouTube. That's a really good card, and you can tell Sam's uncomfortable getting all the accolades. But he he just didn't allow shit like that, and you know he had a, two or three guys in St. Louis that he'd let the reins off to go nuts. It was Brody Bruiser and Murdoch. And the rest of the guys were told to stay in the ring, don't touch the referees, don't do this, don't do that. But he let, you know, three or four guys over the years, you know, have free reign. And and that was just enough. It it was just enough. And it was it was perfect. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know who Sam Mustick was in 1983, but, you know, as time has gone on, I mean, you could tell his influence, you know, he, he I mean, it was like, you know, Fritz von Erich and Eddie Graham had the, the, the shackles take off him. Now you can do whatever you want with the NWA championship, and it was not always pretty. All right, guys, I'm going to open up a big can of worms here because the, the reason – I wanted that David Von Erich audio in there, and it's a little bit hard to hear, but you can hear, I could hear it. David Von Erich says at the end that either I'm going to win the championship or I will quit wrestling. One of the great mysteries out there, it's been out there since the 80s, I, I heard it for the first time, was that David Von Erich was, quote, promised, unquote, the NWA World's Heavyweight Championship. And Steve, I'll start with you. I believe it. I believe it because of the audio. One reason is because of the audio that we just heard that, you know, he's either going to win the title or he's going to quit. Well, I'll I'll say this. I don't think there's ever been a moment in wrestling that you could have said was scripted by Bill after that would have been the moment right there. Uh, I mean, that sounded like it came right out of one of the after magazines. If I don't win this title, I'll never wrestle again. You know, it just seems so corny and so uh, over the top, you know, and, um, but as, to answer your question, yeah, I, I guess uh, I would believe that. I mean, he really met all the, uh, checked all the boxes to become an NWA champion, especially because his father was so uh, important and respected, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I, I think that, you know, the unfortunate thing that happened to him and he passed away so early, I think that's why Kerry ended up getting it over Flair, even if it was a brief run. It was just kind of like a make good kind of a thing and make the promise fulfilled. But, um, yeah, I could see him being at least a part-time NWA champion. Now, Brandon, I'm going to hand it over to you. Now, the argument against David Von Erich being promised the title, this takes place June 1983. David passes away February 1984, and he never saw the title. 
Yeah, um, it, it, the big question is is when he would have actually actually gotten it. I tend to believe that he would have. Um, I think that's why he went to Florida to work heel to learn to work heel. You know, and it could have just been maybe to get out from under his father's thumb for a little while. Um, maybe he wanted to do that as well. Um, he main evented St. Louis. Sam respected him a lot. Um, so I think it was, I think it would have happened when, I don't know, you know, um, would that have affected Starcade? Could, could he have won the belt before and headlined Starcade? Cause Flair was big enough in the Carolinas. It didn't matter if it was Harley race facing him in that match. I don't believe, I think they were going to sell out Greensboro no matter what just because of Ric Flair. So, you know, a lot of people say, well, he would have got the run in, in May of 84, you know, like, like Kerry did and would have only been for a few weeks. Um, I, it's hard to say, but I believe at some point he, he would have, it's just the, the win, you know, exactly when, and yeah. there's good arguments on both sides, you know, and, and we'll never know for him. Yeah, no, and it was it was it was tragic. I mean, it was so tragic that Vince, who doesn't really respect anybody, and especially at that time when he was going nuts, um, which I don't blame him for. He was a driven man, and 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 you know, it, it's business, it's capitalism. But even he acknowledged his death on you know, and that was almost unheard of at that time on a WWF show. I mean, David had only worked the garden once. I think each of the boys had worked it once, and, and that was it. So, Steve, you were going to say something. No, I, I was just going to say. I, th- I think that's part of uh, why the why I think why Vince wanted to acknowledge it at least. I, I think uh, you know, in the back of his mind, uh, the Von Erichs were this um, nice attraction, a nice you know thing that he could eventually bring into the WWF and uh take advantage of. I mean he he ended up doing it I guess with Kerry, you know, in 89, but you know, we had the had the boys been able to stay alive and stay healthy, I'm sure Vince would have liked to bring them in at one point or another. I uh, my understanding is that- was that Vince wanted he knew he wasn't going to get the Von Erichs from Fritz Von Erich or from world class, at least, you know, in 84, 85, he knew that just wasn't going to happen. So he tried to have a working agreement with them so that he could borrow Kerry and Kevin and, you know, occasionally send a WWF guy uh, to world class. They had a deal in place in 86 when Ricky Steamboat worked the Cotton Bowl. And my understanding I was going to mention that earlier. Yeah. And my understanding is that um, Vince, you know, okay, now it's Vince's turn to use Carrie and and Fritz von Erich wanted twenty five thousand, so it all fell apart. Yeah. Well, yeah, and one of Andre's very last outside WWF visits, besides Japan, was world class. I think in April of eighty four, if I'm not wrong. So yeah, yeah well, that could have been a little little overture right there. You know what? That's that's a really good point. I never, I never looked at it that way. But yeah, my understanding is that Vince always wanted to work with Fritz, whereas he was trying to put everyone else out of business, and it, it just never came together for whatever reason. But uh, anyway, so th- there goes that debate. You know, was D- David Von Erich promised the NWA championship? The first time I heard that was 1987, and the, the debate still rages today. And now I've got some audio for Michael Hayes uh, coming before his big match. He and Terry Gordy against Kerry Von Erich and Bruiser Brody for review purposes. Let's hear from Michael Hayes. Earlier, Mark Lawrence talked to Freebird Michael Hayes about the upcoming American Tag Team Championship. Well, the American Tag Team title means a lot to a lot of people, including the Freebirds. And the outcome of this is going to happen right here for you a little later on. Well, Michael Hayes, Bruiser Brody, to team with Kerry Von Erich. And all of you said that Brody wouldn't show, but he did. I still can't believe he showed, man. You know, I still can't believe the conspiracy and the things that keep going on around here. Every time I got to come to Texas to wrestle, it really makes me mad. You know, I'm a world champion besides the American Tag Team Championship. You see, this is what makes me and Terry and Buddy proud, that we don't have to ask anybody for nothing. We never have since we were kids. 
And every time I go home to Georgia, you know, it makes me good because I bring my Dixie Land Delight baby some money home because I'm a champion. Because it ain't no problem beating up on Kerry Von Erich. Because he was too stupid to take the world belt when I gave it to him. Because he was too stupid to keep persisting and wanting the free birds. And then he went and got Bruiser Brody, man. It's one thing to have to put up my tag title, but to fight Brody. He's an animal. He's wild. Oh, you love it, don't you? Look at you. You love it. You've been waiting for a long time to see somebody you thought could get a hold of the Freebirds, ain't you? Let me tell you something, man. Brody might be big, but I got a brother that stands 290 pounds of walking, talking, roping, stomping, graveyard destruction, baby. He don't back up from nobody, man. And he'll protect me. You just mark my words. I don't care what it takes. When it's all over, we're still going to be the American Tag Champs, Brody. And I hate you. I used to respect you, but I found out you're a Texan. And you're the same kind of scum the rest of them are. The American Tag Team Champions proud of their belts. But there's a wrench in the works. Bruiser Brody with Kerry Von Erich. Stay tuned for the outcome. You cannot say that Michael Hayes in 1983 was nothing. He was fantastic. And again, the, the audio doesn't do it justice. He, the, the facials, the body movements, the, you know, the whole Hayes going crazy thing. The man was phenomenal. Everything's a conspiracy. He's never done anything wrong, but the greatest line was Terry Gordy will protect me. I mean, Brandon, your thoughts on, on Michael Hayes in general. I love the guy in 83. Yeah, he was great, and and it even came through in just the audio a little bit. You could almost hear towards the end. It was almost like the blubbering of a little little brother talking about his big brother. You know, going to protect him. Yes. So yeah, and that even came through without without seeing it. So, but yeah, the the bottom lip pushed out. Definitely, that visual helps. But you you could hear it in his voice. But um, you love the way he plays up uh, Gordy, too, because, you know, he wasn't uh, as good on the mic. But, God, what a what a great dude in the ring, man. I mean, the, the Freebirds, they they meshed so well together. Every guy had his role in that in that faction. And it was such a great thing in the early 80s. Kind of, you know, it was still a great thing in like 86, 87. And then Gordy started making his money in Japan. Speaking of Japan, Steve. At this point in my life, in 1983, I'm like, why isn't Bruiser Brody a far bigger star in the wrestling business than he is? I, I just didn't realize he was making all of his money in Japan. But, I mean, you know, you were a wrestling fan in 83. You know, what were your thoughts on Brody? Well, uh, <laughs> well, I wanted to just first say what you just said about Michael Hayes. I think one of the differences of uh, why he kind of fell off the map by the end of the 80s in these interviews that we're hearing, you can hear at least a little vulnerability. You know, he, his character had different shades and different colors. Later on, he's just all full on, like, I'm Michael Hayes. I'm the badass ass in town. And, and that got tiresome after a while. At least here, he's showing, you know, vulnerability. He's showing different things. But uh, to answer your question, uh, Bruiser Brody, I mean, I always had ultimate respect for him. When he was in the WWF, and he's a uh, opponent for Bruno, I mean, he was a young guy. This is his first big break, and and he had two matches at the Garden, and Bruno ended up winning, but it was kind of still inconclusive. So you knew that this guy was really something. Uh, there was, you know, he was really, uh, you know, awesome when he teamed with Hanson together. You could tell that they were something. And I followed him in the magazines, and then when I became an observer reader in '87, you know, I got to see all that he had done in in Japan and other places. But um, yeah, I just I just really respect him, and uh, and I did respect him back then. But uh, he was just so uh, hard to pinpoint. As if you're just depending on the magazines, you just really didn't know where he was back then. Yeah, Brandon, you're more of a St. Louis guy. I mean, and the magazines didn't give St. Louis a ton of coverage. They got some, but not a ton. And I mean, I think you saw Brody from a different spectrum than, than Steve and I, because, you know, we didn't get to see him on TV as much, but you did. 
Yeah, and I mean, when he first came in, he he was definitely heel, and you know they had matched him up with uh, Andre, and uh, they had a had a pretty good feud, and then after that's when he kind of started switching, and then there's there's a video out there of him that everybody should try to see. It's I don't know who's interviewing him, but he's completely open and talking about how he's the one that's you know can run the tv trucks and the booker and then all this stuff and at one point he asked the kid he's like this isn't going out anywhere but it shows you just how lucid and smart that he actually was and and just that the whole wild man thing was you know really just part of a a character Uh, it was you know Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, maybe, but that's definitely something to to seek out if if you haven't seen it. I want to say it's about forty minutes, forty five minutes, but it it gives you a good idea of of another side of him, and and that's why Sam liked him in St. Louis as well. He, you know, Sam said, "I can take him out with you know sports writers, and then I can take him out with with business guys, and he, he can he'll be talking about the stock market with them." So. <laughs> He's just totally two totally different guys, I guess. Depending on how you were with him, about about that simple, I guess. Well, that's probably why he got along with Meltzer because I think uh, Brody had been a sports writer for a little bit too. Absolutely, he was. Yeah, and that, you know, I, I haven't seen that interview in a long time, but I remember it was like the first real shoot interview that was out there and he was completely open and honest about things and very well-spoken. If I, if I remember correctly, Brandon, I think it ran more like 25 minutes, but I could be mistaken coming into this. You're match, probably right. Yeah. I, 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 or I could be wrong. I have no idea. It's probably been 20, 25 years since I've seen it, but it, it was really good. And it's worth seeking out. As a matter of fact, when I'm done recording, I, I will seek it out. I thought, Al, coming into this match, I still a little bit thought Brody was, was going to turn on Kerry. You know, then he did the interview. I'm like, well, it's hard to turn him after that interview. Then he starts a fight with Kamala. So I'm like, okay, it's a little less likely, but I'm still kind of thinking he would. The finish of the match had Bruiser Brody pick up Kerry Von Erich and throw him into Michael Hayes. And K- Kerry gets the pin. As soon as I saw Brody pick Kerry up, I'm like, here it is. I'm right. He's turning wrong. <laughs> but I thought this was a really good match, Steve. Well, it, it reminded me of, like, say, a Saturday Night Main Event or even a Clash of Champions where you have a real main event pay-per-view type match thrown together, but they're just giving you kind of like a Reader's Digest version of it. They're not, you know, giving you a full blown out 30, 40 minute match. Uh, and I think that's what was cool about this show because you, they were, I think the purpose of the show was to draw in new fans and draw in the people and have them come to the arenas and pay the big bucks. They, it was a sold out crowd and it was a turnaway crowd. My understanding is it is legit that thousands of people were turned away. Uh, I mean, world class was on fire. It's a little bit weird that they didn't have a stadium show in 1983, Brandon, because I think they could have sold it out. I mean, the Cotton Bowl's right there. Texas Stadium is right there. Yeah, and they had done it, you know, as far back as 72. So you wonder what in that time frame why they didn't, especially being that hot right after Christmas night of 82. That's a really good question, actually, why they did not do that. In, uh, they needed Jerry Jones there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but as far as the match goes, I'm with Steve. It was sort of a Reader's Digest version. You know, I figured Brody and and Gordy might get some juice. They didn't because Brody was pretty much a juice freak. And there was one, one great moment where he picks Hayes up and obviously slams him easy. And then basically one arms Gordy and slammed him and that was just insane because Gordy was huge and then one uh, one of the kickoff uh, pin attempts he basically throws Hayes into the ropes and so it was good good match and sent the sent the fans home happy I'm guessing they ran him in that order um, I don't know if, if the NWA title match was would have been last or if, if they just reversed it for the show but that's definitely a way to send the send the fans home happy. 
Yeah, the results I have have the tag team matches, the final match of the night. And yeah, I think it was a send the fans home happy, especially, you know, this is your first really big show since the Christmas show with uh, Kerry Von Erich, where, where you definitely didn't send everyone home happy. Steve, overall, what did you think of the show? Oh, I, I thought it was outstanding. It, it, it um you know, seeing all the cameras in the ring and all the all the wires and stuff, uh, it, it it had that feeling of almost like a all Japan or New Japan show where you know you have all the people in the ring, the girls with the flowers and all the stuff. I mean, you had that feeling, uh, certainly like a feeling of gravitas with all this stuff going on, and you had like an all star card with. You know, older legends like Jose Lothario and and Fritz uh, von Erich, and and you had the younger guys uh, too, and you had DiBiase, you know, uh, guys at their peak like Brody and DiBiase, and of course the von Erichs at their peak. So um, I definitely uh, give it a, a very high rating, like four stars out of five, I guess. And uh, it definitely, uh, I, I can't think of a more appealing world class show that you could have picked out. Yeah, I can't believe it's been 40 years. Brandon, your your thoughts on the show overall? I'm the same way. Um, I, you know, I, I probably don't like it as much as I did at the time, um, but that's it's not by much. And the the name, like Steve said, was you know the moniker of the show was was pretty true. International, they had guys from Japan, Mexico, Mongolia as well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, just uh, just incredible, and, and the fact that they put it on TV kind of shows you how hot they were. Because Fritz wasn't stupid; um, he evidently felt it would have no bearing on future ticket sales, and at least for a while, it, it didn't at all. And you you know you got to remember back then, Steve had mentioned earlier the the older women in the crowd. Well, there were even older people out there that were watching the TVs that not couldn't necessarily or were maybe even scared to go into the city to, to see a, you know, a huge crowd to see a card. So they got to see it. And, you know, when I first moved to Dallas in 95, I, you know, I'd meet somebody my age. And first thing I'd always ask him, you know, is did you watch wrestling back in the day? And none, you know, I'd say world-class and they didn't know what I was talking about because to them, it was the Fort Worth show on Saturday nights. They're like, you mean Saturday night wrestling? And then I'm like, well, I guess if that's the generic name, but that's what it was called Saturday night wrestling for, for years. So, um, but yeah, I thought the show was, uh, Really, really good, even though some of the matches weren't the best. The overall presentation and just like, gravitas was a good word that Steve used. It had that, you know, and, and lots of lots of big names. And that's that's hard to beat, you know. And I at the time I was watching the USA shows and MSG was always cool. Some of the bouts were, were slower, but it was just the magic of that place you know, that, you know, made some of the some of the cards better to me, maybe than they really were. But the, now this overall, what's to really complain about, especially for 1983? Yeah, I thought I mean, this could be recency bias at work, but I thought this was an excellent, excellent show as good, if not better than Starcade 83 and certainly better than all the WWF shows they had in 1983. And like I said, it, it was a there wasn't that one match that like one four star match in my opinion, but the whole thing just came together so well. I thought they did a fantastic job. Speaking of fantastic jobs, Brandon and Steve, thank you for your fantastic job being on this podcast. Well, Brandon, uh, thanks, it's great man. meeting always, you. Yeah, it was great to meet you, Steve. I always appreciate coming on and always in, enjoy it and look forward to it. I always know, and and hopefully in the future I'll get him. I'll get that out of the blue message from John. Hey, you want to be on the show, such and such? And it's always, of course, man. Just tell me when, and I'm there, man. No, oh, for sure. Thank you. And yeah, and I've had you on multiple times. You're always great on the show, Steve. Thank you for doing what you do on Stick to Wrestling. Well, thank you. I thought it was a great show, and uh, thanks to Lou, of course, who makes it all all the puts all the pieces together for us. Absolutely. I want to Love thank our Lou. 
Lou's the greatest, Lightning Lou. And I want to thank him for all of his great work he does producing this podcast. I want to thank uh, Brian Lass for giving me this forum. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day.